Sam sang um, Timber to my baby today. Yeah. Were you yelling Timber? <laughs> she was, and then Are I you fixed gonna, it. going to make it move or something? <laughs> what is that song? I don't even know how it goes. Mm-hmm. Anyway. I'm not singing a lullaby version of Timber. <laughs> just, sing, just sing the regular version of Timber, Sam. I don't know it. <laughs> I'm also not singing the regular version of Timber on your podcast. All right. So how are you, Derek? How are things down in Boston? They're fine. We got snow. It's exciting. It's very exciting. No, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Things are fine. I'm going to RailsConf. My talk was accepted, so I'll be there. I'm also going to RailsConf. My talk was also accepted. Wow. Yeah. Sean, are you yeah. going to RailsConf? I am going to RailsConf. <laughs> but I, you don't I even have a talk. accepted your talks. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't, couldn't get in, huh? Couldn't speak. Okay, well, that's too bad. Yeah. 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 Okay. He's so bad at submitting papers that he had to review them instead. Yeah. It's the easy way in. No, it was I, funny because I've always been annoyed, especially at larger conferences, when it's like sometimes you have to ask to get mic'd up and then you just sort of stand there and then you're, it's like, is it time? Do we, do we, I guess, I, I guess we're going to start now. And then you, and it's very confusing. It's like nerve wracking, especially for newer speakers. So I was like, I'm going to be awesome track organizer and be like involved and make sure everybody's good to go ahead of time and like offer to help review talks. And then I'm going to MC the track so that like, it feels like there's somebody there kind of directing them. So that way just they don't have another thing to add stress. And then my track starts with Sam and Eileen, the two people who need help less than just about anybody else we could possibly have had. <laughs> yeah. You can go to other rooms. It's okay. <laughs> Wait, is this, are we doing the podcast right now? Yeah. Okay, great. I, I was not sure we had formally started. Uh, we don't, I mean, sometimes we will formally start, but like. Here, let's formally start. Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. There, now we've formally started. Greetings. Hello, Sam. Hi. I think you're our first repeat guest on the show, other than people that we would consider hosts. I think it's the 100th episode as well, right? So Aaron's yeah. our, our other repeat oh, guest. Oh, yeah, that's right. Aaron's been on twice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah, this well, is I'm it. This is 100 episodes. This is the end of season one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or the beginning of season one? Who knows? Was it zero indexed? Are, are season zero indexed? Maybe. Yeah. What's going on? What have you been working on this week? Anything exciting? Uh, been finishing up my SQL support, trying to figure out Postgres upsert. Had an interesting bug that I discovered where if you are trying to use a column that appears on the right side of a left outer join in the where clause of a query with diesel, like you just can't. So give me an example of a query I can't write. Like users left outer joins posts where posts title it equals foo. That seems like a significant bug. Yeah, yeah, it's been there since 0.1. Like, huh. and nobody's encountered it until last week, which was surprising. Uh, how does that make you feel? Like, I should have a test where I use a <laughs> column that appears on the right side of the left outer join in a where clause. Uh, mm, yeah. yeah, the types are right, though. So. <laughs> yeah. So that's actually the issue, is that I have this trait that represents whether or not a column can be selected from a given query source, and then what the SQL type is when it comes from that query source. But because specifying the SQL type over and over again is really annoying there, I have that that value default to just the general type of the expression when you don't know the query source. And so then all over the place, I have all of these implementations of it, like the equals node, right? 
impl uh, selectable expression for a given query source where the left-hand side of this equals implement selectable expression for that query source and the right-hand side implement selectable expression for that query source. But because I didn't specify the SQL type there, I'm also implicitly saying and the query source hasn't changed the SQL type. Okay. So anytime it's on the right-hand side of left outer join and the type changes to be nullable, that constraint fails. And this applies to basically all predicates or like any non-primitive nodes in the entire query builder. Uh, did you fix it yet? <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, no, and like I thought I had a straightforward way to fix it. I looked at it this morning. I'm like, oh, wait, right. I've looked at this before. And if, my first idea was just, all right, I have expression and selectable expression. Expression is actually kind of a lie because you can never actually know the, the SQL type until you know the query source. So like, let's just make them one trait and always have it be generic over the, the query source. Because selectable expression is implemented in such a way that you could technically implement it for multiple query sources and multiple SQL types, but there's in practice no reason to do that. You have exactly one SQL type per query source. But then that breaks the as expression trait that I have, because like the, the way it sort of works, right? When you do title.eq a value, you're constructing that and then passing it to filter. And it's not until after it's been passed to filter that we um, know the query source. So I can't actually say, all right, so this, the argument EQ, I want to convert you to an expression. Here's the SQL type you need to be converted to. I can't actually say what that SQL type is because I don't know the query source. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking what I'm actually going to do is just go with the the fact that something becomes nullable on the right-hand side of left arrow join only actually matters in the select clause and just not actually have it affect how things work in where clauses. And so I'll end up having two traits. One that is you are an expression that exists on a given query source. And then another one that's like, and here's how that affects the SQL type. And so one of those will affect only select clauses and the other one will affect everywhere else. So the idea being the type safety provided to you by like a nullable value that you're selecting is not necessary if you're not selecting it back into your rust code right because it just it really doesn't matter and where even ignoring the joins changing it like in general the nullable versus non-nullable distinction doesn't yeah i I, i'm starting to think it just doesn't matter outside of select clauses and that's because you don't need the rust type system apart from where you're actually pulling data out of the database right well it's also just like whether or not a value could potentially contain null doesn't actually change like the semantics of the operations you're performing because any comparison to null returns null and like you would basically expect that to return false anyway and null acts the same as false in that in that case so and is that also true in mysql yes famous last words <laughs> um did you see the google spanner beta thing no what's that i haven't looked at it in depth but it's just it's a relational database that they're claiming all of the upsides of a NoSQL database and all of the upsides of a relational database no trade-offs spanner is really interesting though because like they've taken the like relational concept and then they've gone ahead and used paxos the quorum algorithm to actually do a pretty decent job of like sustaining availability under like semi partitions. So like where most SQL architectures fail because any partition anywhere is a serious issue. Like because the underlying way that replication is done is using Paxos and quorums, they're actually able to have some of the right nodes disappear and be fine. Okay. I was just excited because the first thing I went and looked was, do they also follow the information schema standard? And they do. So I'm like, yes, if I want to write a diesel adapter, it's that much less work. 
That's a standard? Yeah, it's an ANSI standard. Oh, link to that in the show notes. I'll be interested to see to what degree they implement, like, SQL standard and where they deviate and stuff like that as well. Yeah, I mean, it looks like other than their type names differ, it seems to look quite similar. Well, and and the fact that they have embedded child records, which I don't know how that's represented over the wire, but... And when you say similar, do you mean SQLite, Postgres, MySQL? ANSI. ANSI, okay. Interesting. That was very exciting for uh, the world of distributed systems. Yeah. They've announced this thing. Can I use it today? Like, what's the... Yeah, it's it's in beta. It's in beta. It'll be in beta for the next 12 years. No, Uh, like, they they released a beta, is what it was. Right, yeah. And there's a a paper that goes along with it that explains it from, like, a sort of distributed systems cap theorem worldview. Okay, we will link to that in the show notes as well. Are they using it internally for anything? Well, anything that we would have heard of? I have no idea. Yeah, I didn't look. I didn't look that closely. I saw some of my friends on Twitter discussing it and was able to understand enough of the conversation to be <laughs> find the, at least the idea very compelling. I haven't looked at the specifics yet. Okay. By the way, Google has become my favorite company because somebody from Google reached out to me to send me a onesie, and then the next question they asked was, "Cool, we have these sizes. Which would you like?" And not just like the only having six months onesies. Don't get me wrong. I appreciate six-month onesies. Thank you very much. But, like, every company only has six-month onesies, which seems like... <laughs> Did you just ask for all of them? Because the baby's going to grow. <laughs> no, I didn't want to. I didn't want to be rude. I would have. Yeah, but, yeah, like, I'll take have. three months, nine months, and uh, 18 months. There you go. I mean, I didn't know if, like, this person was going to be getting them for free or not, so... <laughs> uh, so, Derek, what's up with you? Yeah, I was going to say, you guys have far more, like, interesting things. The highlight of my week was the discovery of the HTML5 form action attribute on inputs. <laughs> that was the highlight <laughs> nice. of my week so far. So that was like, it was a thing I didn't know was possible. It was like we have this one advanced search form in the application that has like a bunch of right. bunch of different inputs. And you like click filter and it does a get request and like with all these attributes and gets the thing. And they were like, all right, we want to have another button on the form that downloads a CSV instead. Like when you click it, sure. instead of re-rendering, you'll download a CSV. So my original thought was like, oh, how am I going to do this? Because I need all those parameters that are in the existing form, but I can't nest a form. But I need like the cleanest way for me to do this is to like post to the same endpoint and use like a format block in the controller that says like if it's CSV, just right, send the data. Right, right. So I'm like, all right, well, I guess like I could like when the button gets clicked, I could use JavaScript that goes and like changes the action of the form to submit to the CSV formatted endpoint. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, that kind of stinks. And then, I, and then I started thinking about, like, is there some way I could do this without JavaScript? Because I like to find ways to do things without JavaScript where possible. Sure. And I was like, well, maybe I could somehow, like, render a shadow form. But then I was like, how do, you, how do I keep it up when the user changes things? And I started doing some Googling, and then I found, like, the answer is this form action attribute that is supported widely across, like, e- like IE10, I think, added support for it. And then everything Does else. mobile Safari support it? Mobile Safari <laughs> supports it. And it's oh, in, wow. It's also in an admin interface for this application, so it doesn't particularly matter right now. But, uh, oh, okay. But sure. so basically, all I, can, all I do is I added a new button that says, like, download CSV, form action equals, and then use the URL helper and just say format CSV. And when they click it, it overrides, the, the function of it is it overrides the action on the form, oh. which was really interesting, and I did not know it was possible. And so, like, I, when I found this, I was like, oh, interesting. That's a nice little, like, today I learned nugget. So I, like, shared it in ThoughtBot's development chat room, and people were like, what? I didn't know this was a thing. Like, this would have been useful a couple times. And I was like, yeah, isn't that, every once in a while, like, usually you find those things, and it's like, oh, there's this HTML5 attribute, or this HTML5 input type, or this HTML5 something, and you're like, I can't use that for, like, frigging 
Safari or like <laughs> or something else. <laughs> but that's that's really nice. So presumably that doesn't let you specify like your accept header, but it does allow you to at least have a separate action to do right. the thing that you want. So right. it's it's not quite you know content negotiation and full rest, but right. it's like fine. Yeah. Speaking of HTTP headers, yeah, what? You want to tell that story? Because that was a fun one. Oh right, yeah, 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 yeah. So um, yesterday. I was building a scraper to download some content off Last.fm because there's a lot of like really interesting data about people's listening habits in there. And it just turns out that certain pages on Last.fm, 500 if you do not provide a user agent header. Which we found out because he was doing this in Rust and Rust only has UTF-8 for strings, first of all. So like when you are grabbing bytes from a place and you want to turn them into a string, oh, you put- Put that through a function that's like checks if it's valid UTF-8 and gives you an error if it's not. And what we were getting back was invalid UTF-8. And Sam was like, what the hell's going on? And we were looking at the bytes and, and, and the bytes, <laughs> like the first two bytes of it. And the high bit was set on one of them, followed by a bunch of zeros. And it's like, okay, yeah, no, that's not valid UTF-8. Um, and eventually it was like, I was like, okay, well, let's look at the response headers in the response code. And it turns out it was 500-ing. Right. But it worked in curl. I just remember from like debugging a different issue one time. Oh, right, curl sends headers even if you don't tell it to. So, like, let's look at the headers that curl was sending. And curl, other than the uh, host, header. host header, which you have to set, the only headers it was setting was user agent and accept. Uh, and accept. So, my bet was it was user agent. My bet was it was something doing analytics that was 500ing. And then Sam thought it was accept. So, we had a bet on it, and, and it turned out to be <laughs> user agent. But then we still were like, what are these random bytes it was it, it, it's sending us uh and, wait, wait, and let, so me guess, let me guess let me guess yes go ahead html no it's, it's so oh, it because that would have been valid utf-8 oh, so it, it was even better than that like it, it it looked like binary nonsense and we were like have we just dumped like some random region of memory yes. on this remote web server like what, <laughs> what what have we done and so like we pass it through strings and a hex dump and there's nothing that like either looks like a c data structure or like strings in there so we're like okay let's google the first three bytes of this right thing. and sam's <laughs> next thought was this looks like a magic number yeah so he googles those bytes and then magic number and and the magic bytes are the magic bytes for gzip so we're like oh they uh. sent us a gzip <laughs> which <laughs> makes sense right and of course we didn't think to go let's look at the response headers and see what content encoding was set to <laughs> yeah yeah but, con- but even when we specified please web server do not send us gzip it still sent us gzip and we were like cool <laughs> we've fallen down the edge case rabbit hole here but the solution was indeed just to set a user agent header and then everything worked fine perfect i felt good at the end of this because it was like we we explained all of the behavior very thoroughly <laughs> yeah was the gzipped response html yeah yes. yeah it was just their 500 error page <laughs> yes. but like but if you if you don't go look at the content encoding header, uh, and <laughs> if your first thought when you when you get invalid UTF eight is this server is dumping random memory and not hmm, <laughs> let's look at content encoding and see if it let's see, see what the server something. Let's see what the server thinks it's sending us, yeah. and then yeah, that would be a better answer than that. I've worked on like previous employer where I worked, which shall remain nameless, would send back HTML four hundred fours to API responses. And it's, cool. I, I th- it's kind of a common like problem that you run into a lot of places that are implementing APIs. And so I like brought this up and I was like, hey, when the request is an API request, we should actually like return. Like if they had requested JSON, let's return JSON. 
And right. some Sounds people, reasonable. Some people, you just can't make see the value in that. They're like, well, they're getting back a status code. This is 404. It's like, but <laughs> if their code like tries to parse that regardless, it's going to blow up. And it was just like, well, they should look at the status code first. Right. It's like, uh, well, like, you can't, I guess. I mean, and like we have the same problem where you we have an app that uses the MBTA API. And occasionally it gets an error. And it always, like, we get an Elixir exception because... We're trying to like parse the body of the response, and it's coming back with HTML, and we expect it to be a map. And it's like, <laughs> nope. Totally. You've just said many, many things that I, I would love love to address there. Okay. Derek. And I'm I'm going to do them in like sort of an approximate reverse order of how how they came to my mind. Okay. So I've been on a very similar train of work recently with one of the projects I have at work, where we're standing up a new like HTTP JSON API. You know, really, really standard stuff. Uh, we have an RSpec test suite that like exercises a few of the read-only API endpoints, both in production and like in testing. We call it we like we have a deployment step, which is we've pushed this thing into production. Let's just run like a few requests through it to make sure it still works, right? Like this all seems normal for a JSON API. So it started randomly failing with like hundreds and hundreds of parsing 404 HTML, and I was like, what is going on here? Oh, the like 15th Nginx proxy between this service and the internet has like suddenly started, gone into maintenance mode effectively and has started returning not founds for everything. Hmm, we should deal with the status code before we try and parse the response body. But yeah, so that, that was exciting. The next one is the HTTP spec gives us like a bunch of ways of dealing with this, right? So if you set an accept that only says application JSON, Really, if we're going to get extremely semantic, if the server can't give you JSON back when it errors, it should be not acceptable, not like 404, right? right? I do kind of agree with between the URL that was requested and the response to as 404, there's very rarely additional information that the response body would provide. You should definitely not send HTML in that case, but like you could also just send an empty response body. Yeah, I get why some things do it, but like even the JSON API spec says you're supposed to do this, and it just irks me to no end. When it's like, all right, if you return a non-200 status code, return a JSON object that has the key status and the value of the HTTP response code. Why? What value does that add? So that doesn't add anything, but I do think there is a lot of value in potentially including tracing information richness about the error perhaps like sub resources that were unfindable sure if you have that but right. a lot but right presumably if you were returning html you were just giving back generic 404 page right yeah and a, a lot of that can occur because of like misconfigurations at like load balancer levels or stuff and not because your application is doing stuff wrong but sure if you humanly can i think it's a really good idea to understand accept like it's it's more restful Right is to understand and do content negotiation than not right. when, you're, when Absolutely. you're in that world. And then also, I've been programming a bunch of Go recently, which I'm is so very, sorry. very exciting for me uh, at DigitalOcean. And um, like a lot of this error handling is like really forced into you, and it's made me a lot more much like Rust as well. But it's made me much more conscious of like how error prone all my applications are. Yeah, yeah. By the way, Sam, did you see this? <laughs> did I see? But did you read Tef's tweet as well? Sean is showing me tweets in the middle of the podcast. <laughs> when a time zone is not explicitly specified, the default time zone, America, Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> 
And then my reply, which I, I thought Sam might appreciate as the originator of this, was it makes complete sense if you're willing to relocate to San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. We'll link to the source of that joke in the show notes. No. Yep. Please no. Yep, we will. And please, please, all of our listeners, retweet it as much as you can. <laughs> Sam wants that joke to die. Please no. <laughs> yeah, so you said a lot of things that were related to rest, and my talk at RailsConf is loosely about rest, and I'm going to cover none of that. <laughs> so, so, I will not be talking about content negotiation. I will probably not mention the name Roy Fielding. <laughs> <laughs> because okay. the my from my perspective the it, like I don't know I mean I think all that stuff is interesting and I may actually talk about some of it but like the interesting thing to me that I will be more talking about is like what really thinking hard about resources and verbs does to the design of your code but so like as you were talking about this I was like oh man are people going to read this and think like I'm going to start getting up there talking about content negotiation because <laughs> I'm not <laughs> so so I think I think it's interesting about where you can draw the boundary here, right? Between like what you define rest to be. And I think actually sticking to the like rigorous academic definition actually isn't all that useful for most engineers in like most of their day-to-day lives, right? But so for example, I think where you have places where it makes sense to do content negotiation. So for example, like if you build the most vanilla of all Rails apps, being able to tack a .json on the end of the URL and turn it into JSON is actually like a really powerful thing, right? And as long as you've got your pagination correctly and that's not going to destroy your application as you format a million plus records into JSON, right. like I think that's that's a really va- valuable thing to have. I think the discussion around content negotiation more generally is very interesting because we have the power to do that well, and Rails makes it easy, right? And so if you're going to have a discussion about REST in Rails, you know, resources, nesting, verbs, I also think there's a lot of room to talk about content negotiation quite naturally as part of a day-to-day engineering workflow. I'm also fond of making things so that you can send a million records to JSON over the wire. It's fine. <laughs> uh, Maybe not a million, yeah. but 10,000 is probably the order of magnitude that I think should be fine. Yeah, I I mean, I think that's reasonable. It depends on your language and how performant it is. And Right, but I'm, I'm a fan of making things performant enough sure. in whatever language so that, you know, yeah. I mean, obviously that also depends on the content of those records because right. there is a certain point where, like, right. y- your record is a blog post and your bodies are, you know, several <laughs> megabytes a piece. And then, yeah, maybe 10,000 yeah. of those, not right. something to send over the wire. So, but at that point, that's not the language, that's... I feel like with Rails and almost every app, there's something I have to do. Like the CSV thing is a good example where like I have enough experience where I was like 1,000 rows. That's all you get. You get 1,000 rows. And that's Yeah, no, Rails Rails (laughs) is one order of magnitude too low, I think. Yeah, so that's really interesting because I have a project going on at work right now. I have to be slightly vague about the details, but like where we need to move some of our largest tables from a database to something that is not a database but can have csv imported into it and we're like trying to work out what a sensible mechanism is for generating these like million plus row csv files and getting them from database a to database b but it's not a straight up just like dump all the columns and send it it's like slightly more complicated than that 
I don't have a good answer for you. <laughs> My answer is maybe pick a format that isn't CSV. Uh, if if it was easy to do that, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I can't like go into detail. And we can't sure have- no, that's fine. CSV though is like just I appreciate the simplicity of it, but boy, it's just a poor choice so- for just about anything. Because your data might have commas in it? Is that your... <laughs> I mean, that's one reason, yes. But also just because of the ad hoc style of it, the lack of validation. Like, what if you have a row in your CSV file that has a larger or, or smaller number of uh, of fields than the number of headers? Which, yeah. like, is a common thing to do. And every client is going to react differently to. Yeah. Joe tells us really good story about one time having a situation like that where, like, certain rows had more columns, but they needed to, at the end... To make CSV valid, they have to make sure they have headers for all of those rows. And so, like, he would keep track of, like, oh, this row added these headers and, like, the performance nightmares that, that ended up causing. Because, like, right. people want to have a CSV of 10,000 rows or whatever. And you're like, oh, we need a background job for that. And then we're going to need an email address. And when it's done, <laughs> we'll send you an email. And you're like, what? But, yeah, that's um, where we're at. So... Derek, just to come back to rest. Yes. What, well, so, what are you actually covering in your talk beyond like just verbs and resources? Um, I don't know yet. <laughs> I'm going uh-huh. to be verbs writing and resources. Verbs and resources. <laughs> I think the angle I'm looking at it from is more. So, like, I I opted into beginner track for this, or not okay. a track, but like a beginner targeted talk, um, sure. because a lot of what I see in applications that I work with from various developers is basically the mistake boils down to making too many big things and not enough small things and i think that thinking about things trying to find more interesting nouns and you know kingdom of nouns is actually a problem so watch out for that but whatever trying to find different nouns that you can verb uh, (laughs) uh, can like so the first thing it does obviously is like oh it creates more routes and it creates more controllers but then you start to see like oh um so instead of having order cancel, like an order cancel action, I have an order cancellation create. And that right, actually right, models right, my right. domain more because you're not actually canceling the order. What you're actually doing is requesting a cancellation. Oh, maybe it should be order cancellation request create. And then, like, so you can start going through something like that. <laughs> right. And it starts to okay. give you better language about your application, too, that you didn't know was even hiding out there. So basically, that's what I wanted is, like, I want something to I want, <laughs> I wanted something to point people to when... I feel like they're in this situation and be like, here, like, look at REST like this, not like, don't worry about it so much from the academic perspective, which I think is really interesting. Right. But maybe like you were saying earlier, maybe day to day, not something you need to worry about, particularly as a Rails developer, where this is kind of like we have conventions, which sometimes are incorrect, but they right. make our lives work. And, so. and so you're sort of aiming towards the ideal of a roots file, which only includes resources or resource blocks. Yes. And I've talked about this before, but like that is my favorite. Like when I start on a new project, the first thing I do is open up the routes file because I'm like, what are the things and what can you do with them? Right. And so like when it's just resources and it's all restricted with only so I can see exactly <laughs> which ones you can do on each thing. I'm always like, ah, oh, this is great. I know exactly what you can do. I don't necessarily know what that means yet. But I know what the sure. available things to me are, and I know where the and, and you're more comes. likely to know what it means because everything has a name, right? Right, and a name that was like somebody had to sit down and think about, like, oh, okay, what should this be? That also sort of at least constrains the concepts to like the core, you know, create, delete, update, read. Man, right. I said that in the wrong order. You'll right. have to take my Rails license away. <laughs> I don't actually write Rails apps anymore. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> my, my favorite endpoint is uh, order process. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> so much semantic information about what's going on there. The real the, the thing is, and I feel like I keep coming back to this, I think there's going to be a significant portion of the talk where I just rail on state machines on things. Because I feel yeah. like that's a state machine is what happened. Then uh-huh. it leaked out to the controller level. Yep. And nobody Absolutely. thought about like what the thing involved is. And like th- once you start thinking this way, you can actually clean up a lot of state machines, which I think are problems for a lot of people who have them. I, and you can have a state machine that's very simple and fine, but geez. This is really interesting to me, at least, because like when, when I joke, when I say I'm not a Rails developer anymore, what, what I mean is like, you don't write Rails code. <laughs> I sometimes write Rails code, but like the, the vast majority of new code at DigitalOcean is written in Go, and most of our services internally communicate with gRPC, and it's it's almost like we've gone back to like individual named functions for every single thing that you want to do. So you might have like get user or like update user attributes, but like no nesting, and like a lot of the concepts are more sort of domainy. So instead of like having a update droplet you might have a turn networking off on this droplet endpoint right and mm-hmm. like it's interesting how it's sort of come full circle back into very flat api design with lots of very small things right like we're, we're breaking out tons and tons and tons of microservices yeah one of the feedback on the talk was like are you going to talk about like the areas where rest is not appropriate and where other right. things might be and i like I did respond and say, like, I could talk about, like, real-time apps where it may not be appropriate and sure. things where something like, shoot, I'm forgetting the, the name of the thing, the Google thing. I mean, the, the GitHub GRPC. thing. Well, that, oh, but I, also uh, the thing that Roth, GitHub does that lets you construct the API response you want. Oh, GraphQL. GraphQL, yes. Um, where something like that is appropriate. Totally. But I don't know that I'm I don't know that I'm going to jump into that. But it made me think, like, so how have you been finding, like, using RPC? Is GRPC just like a... What's the difference between RPC and GRPC? So I'm pretty sure the G either stands for Google or generic. And it's like, Google. Okay, great. So so basically, all the messages on the wire are protobufs. So you're, gar- right. you're guaranteed to deserialize correctly. Like, you don't have this issue with... It's a blob of JSON where you don't know what all the keys and what all the values inside it are. Um, mm-hmm. And also updates to the messages are designed to be backwards compatible. So you can deprecate a key and not break like a downstream client once you've deprecated that key. I mean, you're guaranteed to be deserialized correctly, assuming that the client has the same protobuf file or a backwards compatible version of of it. Right, but that's, I mean... But you could totally just be expecting a different data structure. Sure. I mean, how any, is that different than what we had with Wizzles, other than the the binary part being significantly more performant on the wire? So, I mean, it is in the family of like interface definition languages for sure, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, pick your poison. Uh, this one just seems to work well at scale and across languages, based both on like reporting from Google and sort of anecdotal evidence that I have. I mean, Sean, you're right about like if you have a bad client, you're kind of right. Old. No, I'm not, I'm not saying that as like therefore protobuf is terrible. Nobody should <laughs> right. ever use it. I'm just like but, you know that's a, that's a bold statement. Right. right. But I mean, the way that's actually dealt with is the library just won't pass unpausable frames up to you. Like, right. You as a consumer of the protobuf library will never see an invalid frame. It will get dropped long ahead of time. Then like you make sure all the clients are nominally good by using an internally managed SSL. So like sure. someone has to be able to forge a certificate from an authority that is one they've probably never seen before and that's quite hard. Sure. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's yeah. it's pretty good. And I do think that like there's something to be said for soap was so bad <laughs> that 
we threw away what was probably a good idea about it, which was like, right. we have this agreement ahead of time of what the data is going to look like. Right. And so protobufs are step back in that direction and also come with some significant performance gains. But yeah, yeah, it's all driven under like HTTP2 craziness, mm-hmm. like connections as two ways, like and kept alive for a long time. Yeah, it's it's pretty good. We've been getting a lot of good mileage out of it. And it's been interesting to like design in something that is not rest for once and where it's correct to not do restful things so how like you could use the proto buffs and stuff and still have a restful interface so why was that more because you wanted to do like it was easier for you to make the services out of things that were more rpc based or so this is sort of still a little new and a lot of the conversations that i have on a daily basis are about like what we call goal-based apis so instead of like having your item potent update to a resource you say i want to achieve this goal like user wants to create droplet and you you invoke like the service that manages that and then that goes out and you know hits the like 15 different things that are necessary to make a droplet and then it comes back to you and it's like okay done right and so like basically when you have an engineering organization of scale doing lots of small services is a way for individual teams to have ownership of implementations with very simple agreed upon interfaces and that's you know the sort of challenge we were facing and the solution we've come up with makes sense cool (laughs) all right let's take a um, break for a moment and talk about this week's sponsor fresh books So you're racing against the clock to wrap up three projects, prepping for a meeting later in the afternoon, all while trying to tackle a mountain of paperwork. Welcome to life as a freelancer. Challenging? Yes. But our friends at FreshBooks believe the rewards are so worth it. The working world has changed. With the growth of the internet, there's never been more opportunities for the self-employed. To meet this need, FreshBooks is excited to announce the launch of an all-new version of their cloud accounting software. It's been redesigned from the ground up and custom built for exactly the way you work. Get ready for the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and most importantly, get paid quickly. The all-new FreshBooks is not only ridiculously easy to use, it's also packed full of powerful features. Create and send professional-looking invoices in less than 30 seconds. Set up online payments with just a couple of clicks and get paid up to four days faster. And you can see when your client has seen your invoice and put an end to the guessing games. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to all of our Bike Shed listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com slash bike and enter the Bike Shed all uppercase three separate words in the how did you hear about us section. Thank you so much to FreshBooks for sponsoring the podcast. On the topic of RailsConf proposals, since we were briefly on that, this will be in the rejection emails, which are going out tonight, but in case anybody didn't see it. If you didn't get feedback on your proposal and you would like feedback, leave a comment in the CFP app and one of us will do that. You can also email hosts at bikeshed.fm. Yeah. As a, and that's also a way. Except that I, all I'm the not, other, yeah. Right. Derek will reply to that one. I'll reply to that one. You can also reach out to me through any of the other numerous channels. My email's on my GitHub profile. Y'all know my Twitter. But like, just if your talk was rejected and you would like feedback as to why and you didn't receive that during the review process, Please say something. It, it's worth noting, I did not review for this RailsConf, but I have reviewed for RailsConfs and RubyConfs in the past, and if you at me on Twitter, I will also be happy to read your proposal and tell you what I think of it. 
Yeah. Sam's pretty good at that one. I don't know if you guys know, he speaks at a lot of conferences. <laughs> <laughs> I also reviewed every single proposal for RailsConf and RubyConf last year, which totaled, I think, just under a thousand. So yeah, that was yes. good. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I'm speaking at RailsConf too. <laughs> what are you ta- What are you speaking about? Uh, RSpec, uh, of course. In, you know the world's most surprising turn of events. Um, <laughs> so basically, over the past year since the release of Rails Five, we've been seeing a lot of like random and sporadic bug reports about like my spec broke when I upgraded to Rails Five for this reason, and basically like. RSpec Rails is actually an extremely thin wrapper around Rails' own testing capabilities. And so about half, 70% of the time, something like that, the bug is actually in Rails. What I end up doing is bisecting all the commits between Rails 4 and Rails 5 and going, this commit here, pinging it over to the Rails team and being like, hey, how do I fix this? And it feels to me like Part of the story here is talking about how to make it easy for people to determine whether their bug exists in RSpec yeah. or Rails. So a lot of the times it can be trivial, like, if you just replace their RSpec thing with, like, inheriting from the equivalent Rails class and calling the equivalent Rails method, which there's usually a one-to-one mapping. Yeah. Right. Like, a lot of the time these will be trivially reproducible with just plain Rails. But yeah, so that's one of the specific sort of buckets I'm aiming at, but more generically it's talking about, like, the aftermath of the Rails 5 release being a downstream project that has, you know, a lot of users who care about Rails 5 and RSpec working nicely together and some of my experiences of that. Yeah, I'd definitely be interested in hearing. I'm going to go to that one because I have a similarly extremely popular Rails gem. (laughs) 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 No, but I, I feel those pains on a much smaller scale of like, oh, really? It did what? And how am I supposed to keep this backward compatible? Like, what? Uh, right. Anyway. So, so, like, RSpec is compatible back all the way to Rails 3.0. Because Please we stop. <laughs> we, <laughs> it's safe to drop to 4.2 and later, guys, at this point. Because we haven't released a major version right. no. since, yeah. well, I mean, since Rails 4-something, but, like, here we are. And so a lot of RSpec has just conditionals, which is like, if Rails version is 3, do this thing. If Rails version is 4, do that thing. If Rails version is 5, do the other thing. And we, Hmm. like, one of the things I play in the back of my mind occasionally, this is not official, we haven't come to any internal conclusion on this, is like, could RSpec just do a release which dropped compatibility for old things, but offered no significant major benefits? And I think, like, the argument would be to the people of the Ruby community that the significant major benefit would be us having an easier maintainer life. Right. Which the community doesn't care about, but they should. <laughs> right. Well, that's the thought that immediately came to my head was like, well, you could just release a, like RSpec Rails 4 and all it does is drop support for even all the way through 4.2 and be like, everything forward is 5.0 and that's it. Right. So don't drop support for Rails 4.2. Well, why not? Why, because why Rails 4.2 is still supported by Rails. So what? I mean, <laughs> hey, if, no, I mean, they're wrong. If you want to support 5.0 and later, have at it. But I think, like, a really good default, if you're like, I don't know what versions of Rails support, I feel like a pretty good default is the versions of Rails that still receive security updates. Yeah, but that puts you lockstep in whatever Rails decides to do, because then the next problem is going to come along when Rails 6 comes out, or 5.1, or whatever the case I, I, may I be. I mean, Derek... I hate to tell you this, but if you remember, I was on this podcast, it's nearly two years ago now, and I was telling you that uh, RSpec supported 187 then, 
Yeah. All spec still supports 187 right. today. You've been talking about dropping 187 support for quite a while, Sam. You're like, oh yeah, we're going to do it any day now. We're having a game of chicken with Bundler, and neither of you ever follow through. This is where I was actually going to say, but here's the significant but. Like, our spec is a tool that lets you as a developer get your job as a developer done. And it should be, it on some level, you kind of want that to be possible on. But not on end any of life version. version. So I guess it's I end mean, of life. You should. There's no legitimate reason to be using one eight seven, one nine three, or two zero in twenty seventeen. If your app runs on one eight seven and doesn't on one nine, and you don't want to go through the pain of upgrading to one nine, then your app has security vulnerabilities. Sure, but maybe it's an internal app, and you've taken other mitigation steps. Then like, use an old version of. If you're okay with using an ancient <laughs> version of Ruby, use an ancient version of RSpec. Like, this is true. This is true. You don't yes. have to have. You don't have to have new shiny things. <laughs> this is true. Sure, yeah. and I mean. My counter to that is like the Ruby versions is not so painful to continue to support. Like it turns out 187 is the last like really old Ruby that has basically everything you need. Like block it, like evals that don't take strings, but take blocks, which like eval is a pretty big deal for RSpec. It's how, how most of the magic happens. <laughs> eval PB paste, always the best debugging tool. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so. Just to be clear, we're having a discussion about this. This is in no way official. It would be nice. You heard it here first, folks. Our spec uh, is it. Our spec four is the next major. Yeah, it would be yes. Our spec four coming coming end of February, dropping support for all of the versions of everything you use. No, Rails five one and later only. <laughs> when is Rails five one coming out, Sean? Friday. Oh God, beta. <laughs> yeah. So, so that there goes my weekend. Sorry. <laughs> well, it's just a beta. You don't have to jump on it, do you? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Spot the maintainers in the podcast. Um, honestly, like more than anything, though, like we complain, but I find it very encouraging that people are like, "Where's my rail support? I need it." It's like that tells me that people are still using it and like still really, really care. If we didn't get the flood of, like, where's my RSpec 5.1 support issues, I would actually be very worried that it meant that RSpec was in decline. and Or that Rails was in decline. Or that Rails was in decline. And I don't think that's true. And, like, a lot of what I spend my time doing is, like, telling people that Rails isn't dead, right? Like, I, I work <laughs> in a very polyglot environment, and I know a lot of developers in a lot of different languages, and it's like... Not to say that Ruby is the new PHP, because PHP is awesome now. It was bad for a while, but it's kind of great now. Um, and a lot of that is because Ruby can't do things that like a lot of the languages that are more performant or have true threading can do that become not necessary, but very preferable when you need tracing and instrumentation and logging and monitoring and like a whole suite of things um and one of my observations from like now being an operations developer quote unquote <laughs> is that like non-functional requirements become almost as important as functional requirements and i think the ruby community as a whole has not done a great job of developing standards and practices around those yeah i do know what's going to kill rails oh do you want to know what it is is it, it, is it Phoenix? It's going to be me when I run out of forks one more time on my freaking Mac OS system. <laughs> I'm going to kill it. <laughs> Can't you just turn listen off? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's Don't a we have an option for that. Yeah. Hyphen, hyphen, skip, hyphen, listen. In the issue, there's like a, a workaround posted, but nobody really explains what the workaround 
like what else that controls is like you can change your listener to something else and like I'm like uh, I don't know what this does. So basically we have a more performant way of in develop and this is only in development mode, right? All it does is just the way that we detect when a file changes to handle code reloading, listen makes that more performant and more I want to say resilient, but given how many people have had this issue, resilience is totally not the right word. But basically, when you turn off listen, all it does is it falls back to what we did in Rails 4.2, which is just continuously, basically every request pull every file on the file system. Oh, fun. <laughs> well, in your application. Yeah. Which is, I mean, yeah. I'd rather not have to kill my application every 15 minutes than, like, have file system polling, but, like... Right, no, and, that, and like, listen, this is all, you know, predicated on and listen should work, which... OSX is just not a platform that 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 gem seems to target as highly as Linux. So the Rails issue for this is actually like it it touches on so much of what we've been talking about. I don't know if you've read through the canonical Rails issue on this, but like there is somebody that comes in and is very upset about how Listen is functioning and does not pull any punches <laughs> yeah. at all. And then the Listen maintainer comes in and is basically like, hey, I use Linux on a day-to-day -day basis, and I'm doing the best I can on OS X support, but I don't even have anything to test it on. And like, like yep. it's just like, oh, it's a lesson in like, we need to be a little more understanding of each other. But still, also like, now there's like two people who are really motivated to fix things, but they're mad at each other. Right. And, like, you know what I mean? Like, like so I mean, this is also like, CI all three operating systems. It's a good right. thing to do. Yeah. yeah. I, I remember when we were testing OSPEC against the Rails betas having problems with Listen as well. Yeah. Like, it was printing out, like, could not find file in user Sam documents something. Yep, I remember this and you, one. And you were like, Sam, what the hell is going on with your file system event daemon? And I'm like, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure this is Rails' problem because I've never had it break anywhere else for me. Yeah. I don't know. We we honestly should maybe um, by default on OS ten generate skip listen. Yeah, I, in I, the short term until we can until we can fix it. Totally, and it, I mean it's not like Rails doesn't have people who use OS ten and don't have the bandwidth. Right. No. If any, if anything, macOS is like our primary target, and right. Linux is secondary. I would be interested to know the Ruby survey doesn't exist anymore but it used to break down like which operating system people were using and like the mac was definitely growing when it was still running i would like to i would imagine it's more than half now of, of ruby developers using macs you know you go to a ruby conference sea of apple logos yeah. yeah they'll no longer be lit though if they get the new laptops now it'll just be shiny apple logos so i'm pretty sure i'm just never gonna buy another apple laptop oh I'm biding my time to see if another generation of those laptops comes out this year, which fixes, like, a few of the issues. The rumor mill says it's going to, and that would be wonderful. That's what I'm actually waiting for as well. Like, my, my work Mac from ThoughtBot has, like, service battery in the menu. And it gets, Ooh. like, it gets terrible battery life, and I cannot fix it. And I, I mean, you can you know. still get a, a 2015 one refurbished. You might want to act on that, like, while those are still available. Well, but I, I, this is my work laptop, so like ThoughtBot, like if I tell, I've had it for long enough that I could just say like I need a new laptop, but then they would give me one of the new MacBook Pros with right, the Right, that's bar. what I'm saying. Like you could, you could ask them to get you a refurbished 2015. No, I want, I, I, I think I'm okay with the new laptops. Just a couple, like I'm in the same boat as Sam. I just want them to like fix a couple things. I want 32 gigabytes of RAM. 
Yeah. And I want an HDMI port. I like I, I, I can't not have an <laughs> HDMI port. Don't dongles, Sean. I no dongles. See, this, I don't want to have another thing that I need to remember to bring to every conference, or that's what the organizers need to provide, or I cannot present. So, so funny story. I think it was Evan, but certainly one of the RubyConf organizers ran out the night before and bought a host of USB-C HDMI adapters yeah. for all the people <laughs> with the new MacBooks. So, like. Don't worry. The right. top flight Every- conferences have you covered. It's, right. it's all the regionals. That, that- the problem is, right? <laughs> I used to. I mean, it's not a problem for me anymore. But but you know, I used to do a lot of a lot of those a year, and it's just no. Yeah. I'm I'm gonna stick with a laptop that has an HDMI port. Thank you very much. I'll yeah. switch to Linux before I buy a, a, a computer without an HDMI port. I mean, that's that's your prerogative. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I agree with Derek. I think the 32 gigs of RAM, it's it's 2017. I want 32. Like, that was the one that made me start looking at ThinkPads. And then yep. Gary tweeted me and was basically like, no, Sam, you have to print things ever in your life. And I was like, you're right, Gary. I'd forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, like, since I moved to the US, uh, my life has become paperwork. Entirely paperwork. <laughs> Happy Valentine's Day, by the way. Oh, thank you. Did Do you, you have any plans? plans? Um, no, I'm traveling to Arizona tomorrow, so my plan is uh, to pack. Ooh. Um, so that's what I'm what's, doing. What's in Arizona? My wife's family is in Tucson, so we go out usually oh, like wonderful. once a year. So that, that, That's great. Yeah. Are you going to stay there until the conference, or are you going to come back to Boston? No, I'm going to come <laughs> back to Boston, and then I'll go back. I mean, it's still... The original plan was like... I was like, maybe we should try and hook this up with with RailsConf because I'll be in Tucson, which is like two hours south of Phoenix. Sure. And uh, I was like, maybe we should try and like make this line up, but it was too far out, so we didn't bother. That's that's nice. I've been yes. laughing at just this this Valentine's Day has been the ultimate dichotomy of like life before and after a baby. <laughs> Because, you know, before a baby, Valentine's Day is like, oh, you get nice gifts for each other and go out for a romantic dinner. After the baby, I got Tessa Valentine's gift. It was a night at a hotel room alone. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, was it sleeping in? Like, that's basically. Yeah. No, I literally, I just got her a night. I booked her a night at a hotel. Yeah. (laughs) By herself. By herself. I feel like that was the, I feel like that was the best Valentine's Day gift I could have gotten. Good work. You two married people. (laughs) (laughs) This was episode 100, so I think we should take like a second and thank some people. Lila Winner and Amanda Hill are also co-hosts on the show. I want to thank them. I think we should thank Tom (laughs) just a little bit. Tom does some work. Yeah. This podcast has very professional sound, even though it has two very unprofessional hosts usually. (laughs) And so we want to thank our producer, Tom. We want to thank ThoughtBot, Shopify... We want to thank all of our guests. So Sam's been on a couple of times. We've had a number of other great guests. And those are some of our best episodes. If you can look back through the through the catalog, you can find some good guests in there. I want to give a little bit of a special thanks to all the listeners who have reached out either via email or in the comments or via Twitter to provide feedback or just ask questions or to continue to engage or even coming up and talking to us at conferences. Just, I know I personally really enjoy engaging with all the listeners and talking about people's thoughts on the show. So thank you to all of our listeners, but especially those of you who have reached out to us yeah please keep doing it it's um simultaneously like super embarrassing and pretty (laughs) awesome like it definitely like i'm definitely embarrassed in the moment but then i feel pretty great afterwards so definitely reach out (laughs) on behalf of all of your listeners i'd like to thank you for giving us a hundred really great podcast episodes guys i know i really enjoy listening to them even though i think i'm one behind at the moment that's okay (laughs) all right well thank you very much yeah cheers so here's to another hundred (laughs) as as i'm the only one who has a beer (laughs) i have a polar pomegranate seltzer all right well cheers cheers 
<laughs> and an empty glass here. We can do a plane. <laughs> there we go. Perfect. Okay. All right. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 100. As always, ratings and reviews on Google Play or iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website. As always, thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. Woo! <laughs>